0: Human-computer interaction is a discipline that sits at the intersection of computer science, psychology, and design. In this episode, we'll give you some background on HCI, a little bit about its history, and how new developments happen in the field. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible.
1: Let's start with a brief definition of human-computer interaction.
0: Human-computer interaction is about the interface between the machine and the human being. Both the machine and the human being have inputs and outputs. For the human, our inputs are things like our five senses, and our outputs are things like the muscles that we use to manipulate the mouse or manipulate the keyboard, the voice that we might use to go into a voice interface. For the machine, its inputs are things like its microphone, its camera, its keyboard, its mouse, its multi-touch display, and its outputs are things like its screen and its speakers. Human-computer interaction is about how we make the links between the inputs of the computer and the outputs of the human, or the inputs of the human and the outputs of the computer as ergonomic as possible.
1: What are the different human-computer interaction paradigms?
0: Yeah, we talked about different UI paradigms on a prior episode about the evolution of UI that I'll link to in the show notes. But briefly, the oldest UI paradigm still in use, or some people might call it an HCI paradigm, is the command line interface. That's you type in commands in a terminal, you get back some text output from the computer. That has largely given way to the graphical user interface, which of course has widgets on the screen, things like buttons, menus, text boxes, and we use the mouse and keyboard to interact with the graphical user interface. Some people consider the interfaces on our phones also to be GUIs just like those on our desktops, but of course we use a multi-touch input paradigm when using our phones. So a lot of people consider multi-touch kind of a separate thing from the traditional GUI. Then we go to more cutting-edge interfaces like voice interfaces on our Amazon Echo device or our digital assistants like Siri and Cortana. And looking to the future, we have things like virtual reality and augmented reality that are becoming more and more mainstream, and even neural interfaces that in the future might allow us to directly just think and get our output to the computer um, without it even needing to have us manipulate any muscles. And again, we went into this in more detail on a prior episode that's linked to in the show notes.
1: Let's dive into the development of human-computer interaction. What are some of the main landmarks of HCI or significant events in its history?
0: In the early days of computers, there wasn't much of an HCI as a field. It really didn't come about until the 1980s as a formal field. However, that doesn't mean that people weren't thinking about human-computer interaction going way back. And I want to give some credit to the book Human-Computer Interaction, An Empirical Research Perspective by Scott McKenzie, which I used as a source for a lot of the information in this part and the rest of the episode. So going way back to 1945, Vannevar Bush wrote an essay, he was kind of a public intellectual, called As We May Think. And he was already thinking about things like hypertext and an interface that wasn't that dissimilar from what we would recognize as the World Wide Web today. So people were already thinking about how can we take huge amounts of information that might be stored in computing devices and make them accessible and ergonomic to human beings, going way back to the 1940s. But it wasn't until the 1960s that many of the landmark experiments that kind of kicked off the field really started to happen and some of the important inventions were created. For example, in 1962, Ivan Sutherland demoed Sketchpad. Sketchpad showed the manipulation of vector graphics on a computer screen at a time when most computers didn't even have screens. They had punch cards and teletypes. And it really was something very futuristic at the time to be able to use what in the demo used a light pen. Um, It looked like something from science fiction. And another thing that looked like science fiction was the invention of the mouse, which happened just a year later in 1963 by Douglas Engelbart. So these two inventions in the early 1960s were decades before they would actually be usable on a computer for your average user. But people were already at the point where computers were powerful enough that they could actually be developed, although, of course, they would be way too costly to manufacture for the masses. In 1968, talking about Douglas Engelbert, he gave an amazing demo, sometimes called the Mother of All Demos, in which he showed something that sort of kind of looked like a graphical user interface being manipulated with a mouse with some WYSIWYG, which means what you see is what you get. Text editing. And this was really, again, more than a decade before any of this would be commercialized. So the mother of all demos kind of demonstrated to people what was possible, where could this technology go at a time when people really still thought about computers as something that just big corporations and governments used for crunching numbers.
1: In the 1970s, weren't a lot of interesting things happening at Xerox Park? Yeah,
0: there were a lot of landmark innovations at Xerox Park Research Facility in the 1970s. They had a computer that came out in 1973 called the Alto. It wasn't widely sold. It was really more of an internal development that already had a graphical user interface. It had a mouse, it had networking, and it had an object-oriented programming system that was eventually developed for it. These were innovations that wouldn't be in mainstream computers for more than a decade later. So they were really ahead of their time. They eventually did commercialize this into a product called the Xerox Star that came out in 1981, but it was way too expensive for most people. So it wasn't until 1984 that the Apple Macintosh came out and Apple actually had an agreement with Xerox, but that's a conversation for another time because there's a lot of controversy around that bit of history and kind of whose innovation came from whom. But anyway, it wasn't until the Macintosh in 1984 that the graphical user interface and the mouse were really in a machine that was affordable enough for everyday people to be able to purchase. Apple had come out with the Apple Lisa, which was about $10,000 in 1980s dollars a couple years before, but the Macintosh came out at a price point of $2,500 in 1984 dollars, and it was something that regular people could actually buy. So as you can see, it took a long time for these innovations of the 1960s, really about 15 years, to become commercialized in a form that people could actually afford. And in
1: 1982 and 83, there were also some important landmarks for HCI.
0: Yeah, this is when the field of HCI really became something that was studied seriously by researchers. So it's when the field of HCI really came into its own. And in 1982, the first conference held by the ACM, and the ACM is really the main computer science organization, or we could say the most important computer science organization in the world. They held the first conference that we could say was a conference on HCI. And in 1983, a landmark textbook called The Psychology of Human-Computer Interaction came out, which both of these events together are sometimes combined, along sometimes with the Macintosh release as well, to say that they were the era of the birth of HCI as a formal field.
1: After the Macintosh, there was Windows 1.0 in 1985.
0: The Macintosh comes out in 84 and a bunch of other Graphic user interfaces come out around that same time. The most notable one that's still with us today, of course, is Windows. The first version of Windows wasn't used very widely, and most personal computer users would keep using command line interfaces until the 1990s, when Windows really became mainstream, with versions 3, 3 3.1, and 95 in terms of the commercialization of cool HCI technologies, two other landmarks I want to mention are that 2007 was when the iPhone came out, which really popularized multi-touch. We'd already had touchscreens in popular devices like the Palm Pilot going back to the 1990s, but we didn't have multi-touch, which was developed at a startup called Fingerworks in. A mass-scale device until the iPhone in 2007, and Apple had bought Fingerworks. And then voice interfaces really became mainstream in the 2010s. Again, they had existed for decades. They were used in some phone systems. They did have some computer applications, but they weren't something that everyday people used until Siri came out in 2011 on the iPhone, and then, of course, Amazon came out with the Echo in 2014 with Alexa. And so voice interfaces have really come into their own over the last decade. So all of this is just to give you kind of a broad overview of the history of HCI and when these innovations kind of came to market.
1: As we're talking about these innovations, many of them were developed in an academic setting, and some were businesses. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: That's right. HCI is a formal area of research in universities There are many people who get their PhDs in human-computer interaction and do some very interesting scientific experiments. But a lot of the work in HCI is also done, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, by designers. And a lot of the work is also done at large corporations, which often have sophisticated research organizations in and of themselves. We already mentioned Xerox PARC, but of course there's also things like Microsoft Research and Google and Apple have research divisions as well. So there's really a symbiosis between what happens in academia and HCI and what happens at large tech companies. You'll find if you look at the history of the field, often things like the mouse, for example, first came out of real heavy research institutions and then later on evolved into commercial projects. And you'll see that it often takes, it seems, about 15 years for something to emerge in research and get commercialized. But the research is very serious. The research is statistically rigorous. It is done by people who are making small incremental improvements, standing on the shoulders of giants like in all serious scientific disciplines. And what I think I wanna be most clear about is that somebody doesn't just usually come up with one of these new ideas. It's not just somebody was just walking down the street and they thought of multi-touch. It was that touchscreens evolved over decades through serious research being done at both the hardware and the software level, and a lot of incremental improvements done by individual researchers and innovators before it became a commercial product.
1: What are the research studies in HCI like?
0: Yeah, let me just give you examples of a few different kinds of research studies So one classic research study when they were, for example, inventing new pointing devices involves what's called Fitts' Law. You have a target on the screen and somebody needs to try to go and click if it's the case of the mouse or just hit that target as quickly as possible and as accurately as possible. And what Fitts' Law says is there's a relationship between how big the target is and how far the target is away from where the pointer starts with how accurate and how fast somebody will be able to hit that target. So you can imagine an experiment, let's say you were coming up with a new kind of pointing device where you literally just show rectangles on the screen and the rectangle suddenly appears on different parts of the screen and appears at different distances from where the original pointer is and it appears at different sizes and we see how accurately and how fast somebody can hit that target. That's an example of of a pretty basic experiment that's used for a wide variety of different kinds of new pointing device research. Here's another example. Maybe you're coming up with a new stylus. You might want to know... Does that stylus work as well for left-handed people as it does for right-handed people? And you might do a study and you see how accurately people can enter text who are left-handed or right-handed, how quickly they can enter it, and maybe even some qualitative feedback, like how much did they like holding the stylus or how much did they feel the stylus was obscuring their view of the user interface on the screen that they were writing on. Or even if you think about a typical mouse today with its scroll wheel in the middle, That was actually something somebody had to invent. And there were studies done in the 1990s saying, well, you know, the mouse is great for kind of moving the pointer around, but maybe we should have a separate device that somebody can use their other hand with to scroll up and down. And they could just kind of flick something on the other device to maybe move a scroll bar up and down. And then somebody had to think, well, you know what? Maybe that would be better in an integrated device. So then studies were done. Is it better to have that scroll wheel right on the mouse itself, or is it better to have it on a separate device? And people did some serious research into this, and eventually that led to Microsoft's IntelliMouse, which was the first mainstream mouse with a built-in scroll wheel. So the reason I'm citing these three different kinds of studies is just to give you an example of the kind of research that's done in this field. And as you might know, It's pretty fundamental, basic research. And it's not that things just come out of somebody's mind and then they work wonderfully. It's that somebody does a study, they see if something is a little better than what came before it, and they really prove statistically that it is or is not.
1: We've talked a bunch about the scientific process and the history and the technical component of human-computer interaction. Let's talk a little bit about the design.
0: Right, so there are people that come at this field from a very different point of view. There are scientists and researchers in the field, and there are, then there are also those that come from more of a design perspective. Sometimes people call that kind of like the hard side versus the soft side. I don't necessarily like that because that kind of puts down the designers to some extent. There are some very, very valuable contributions to this field from the world of design. One of the most famous books in the field is actually called The Design of Everyday Things, And it's not even about digital interfaces. It's actually just about all of the things we interact with in our lives, from doors to faucets to our ovens, and how the way that we use them can be as ergonomic as possible. It was created by a guy named Don Norman. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, Norman Doors. It's actually related. It's a landmark book in this field. It's basically required reading for anybody that works in this field. And it's not all about just studies and rigorous statistics it is about just some intuitive ideas about how we make things that are ergonomic for human beings to use and almost all of those ideas in the book about physical objects are also applicable to digital objects let me give you an example one idea in the book is what's called a signifier a signifier is something that tells us that something is supposed to be used a certain way for example if a door is supposed to be pushed you might see a little area on the door that indicates where it's supposed to be pushed. Well, in the same way, when you see a lever in your graphical user interface that is able to be manipulated or pulled when you click and hold with the mouse, you'll see a little line on it usually that indicates this is the area that you can click and hold on. That's a signifier. So you see how the same idea from the real world can also be applied to the digital world. So ideas like signifiers and another one's called affordances, which is kind of what are we able to do with an object? How far does it go? How can we manipulate it? Are relevant as much to the real world as they are to the digital world. And then there are also people who write books and do research into design that's wholly digital. One book I like in that area is called Simple and Usable. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So these folks that do come from more of the design perspective, they might still do testing. They'll do, still do a kind of user testing that might give them some statistics, but they're not doing heavy-handed research in the same way as some of the people who are coming more from the scientific side of this field are coming from. And I think people who are serious about HCI today are looking at it from both perspectives. They're taking the best of the scientific world and they're also taking the best of the design world and putting it together. And they're also, of course, having to interact with computer scientists too. So that's really why this field is the intersection of computer science, design, and psychology.
1: Another important part of human computer action is actually about how human beings make errors.
0: We make errors all the time. Like uh, how many times have you been exiting a program and you accidentally clicked the wrong button and didn't save your work? right? Um, We've all done that. And over time, you might have noticed that operating systems and programs have gotten better about having built-in facilities to autosave your work. Well, that was somebody actually thinking about what kind of errors do humans make as they use the interface for saving the work, and how can we try to reduce those errors? So a significant portion of this field is about reducing human error. Um, Let me give you a really catastrophic example of this. In the 1970s, and this is a really famous example in the field, there was a nuclear power plant called Three Mile Island in the United States, and there was actually nearly a nuclear meltdown there. And when it first happened, people said, well, it was human error. But then when people went and really looked at, and Don Norman, who wrote The Design of Everyday Things is one of the folks who was on this commission, went and looked at what happened and really studied what happened, they found that actually... The humans were inevitably going to make errors because the system was so poorly designed. So human-computer interaction is not just about how easy something is to use. It's also about how do we design things to account for human frailties and to account for the fact that human beings are not machines. And we have to have a very human-centric approach to the software and hardware that we develop.
1: How do you folks learn about human-computer interaction?
0: Yeah, so like I mentioned, people come at it from different perspectives. But if you're in college or you just want to take a one-off class, typically you'll find a human-computer interaction class in a computer science department. You might also find classes related to the field in design departments as well, or even in psychology departments. I also mentioned several books during the episode. I mentioned The Textbook by Mackenzie. I mentioned The Design of Everyday Things by Norman. I mentioned Simple and Usable. I'm going to put links to all of those books in the show notes. If you're just interested in learning more on your own, I would recommend starting with those books. Thanks for listening to us this week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter?
1: We're at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S.
0: Please don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast player of choice and leave us a review. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks.
1: Bye.